Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Hey listeners, this is a little different format this week. This is a live recording I did on Facebook with Dr. Michael Hogue, the past president of APHA, Dr. Sandra Leal, the current president of APHA, and Sean Bjorndahl from RPH Alley, who hosted the webinar. So hope you appreciate this as it was a live format, a little different than what I usually do. So sit back and enjoy the recap of APHA 2021 virtual conference. Thank you for joining us tonight. We have a special guest, Michael and Sandra, here with uh, Eric Geyer, the political pharmacist. And we're just doing a recap on this past weekend with the DAPHA annual event or annual meeting and, and exposition. So thank you for coming. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. Um, I'm kind of honored to be here with uh, Sandra Leal and Michael Hogue there, immediate past president and current president of APHA, which is awesome. They've also done a lot here with uh, kind of what we're dealing with in the pandemic. So uh, Michael, what you were the dean at Loma Linda. What number meeting was this for you? <laughs> yeah, I began attending APHA's annual meeting in uh, for the first time in March of uh, 1993. Wow. Uh, I've missed one uh, in that time frame since 1993. So uh, I'll have to take my shoes off. You know, us Alabama guys, we have a hard time doing math, but that's uh, nearly 30 years worth of meetings. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, you definitely uh, fought your way up there to president through the, uh, the long haul. Uh, uh, Sandra, you're now the current president, um, also executive vice president of Sinfonia Rx. Sorry. Um, what meeting was this for you? I'm going to have to do math just like Michael, but it's in the, in the mid-20s, um, something around that. So, yeah, it's been great. I, I, I love APHA. It's one of my favorite meetings, and I remember um, – Presenting, I think one of the first times that I got to go was to do a presentation with uh, Mary Eclothermis was one of the first people that I presented on. Like, I think we were speaking about billing. Um, so I, I just remember what a great meeting it was and networking and the, you know, it's just the every 10th year when they have it at the in DC with a building is all that's always super impressive to me. So it was really nice to be installed in the building, which was not what I expected because I thought it was going to be in, in LA. So it was quite a uh, you know, just worked out that way. Cool. Um, you know, we're doing this live. So if people have questions for them, throw them in there. We're going to try and work them in as we can. Um, we're kind of doing this since obviously with COVID, some people couldn't attend things like that to kind of recap it and to kind of kind of go over what made APHA kind of cool this year and why we need some people involved with the COVID vaccines and uh, some of the other issues that we're facing with pharmacy, like the NBC article that just came out with some of the staffing issues. A lot of those things were actually talked about at APHA. They addressed burnout. They addressed all that type of stuff, but it wasn't all negative. They did address some positives and they had some even cool things in there with like the opioid crisis and things like that. Um, this was actually my first APHA attending, which I, it's kind of weird because I'm 10 years, 11 years out of college now. It was my first one. I've been involved with a lot of other pharmacy orgs, but Scott Knorr kind of reeled me in with the, uh, the Cleveland connection, if you will. So uh, I kind of fell in hook, line, and sinker with it. Um, kind of just going over here, Michael, what was your uh, favorite moment of the APHA virtual 2021? Well, it's kind of hard to pick a favorite moment, but um, you know, the, the thing about the APHA meeting that I have always really enjoyed, and I think to be honest with you, the thing that keeps me coming back, Eric, is um, 
is just getting to meet the movers and shakers in pharmacy. I mean, the people that attend this meeting are uh, the people that are actually getting things done on the ground and are innovating and are stretching practice and are making you think outside of the box. And so, you know, probably my favorite moment of the entire meeting was uh, on, uh, on Sunday evening, we had the opportunity to recognize uh, this year's Remington Honor Medalist. Uh, and the, the Remington Honor Medal, for those who are listening who may not be aware of this, the Remington Honor Medal is actually the highest award that's given in the profession of pharmacy. Uh, it's awarded by APHA, and it's been awarded since uh, uh, 1905, I believe, um, and uh, uh, named after Joseph P. Remington. For those of you who took pharmaceutics, you probably had a Remington pharmaceutics book, um, but uh, um, that the, the award, just to give you the significance of this award, while APHA's former presidents choose the ultimate award winner, the process of selecting the award is actually done by all of the national pharmacy organizations, all of the uniformed services in pharmacy, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, Public Health Service, VA, um, all of them have representatives on the selection committee. So the, the nominations are sought throughout the profession and then one individual is ultimately selected for the Remington Honor Medal. And this year's award winner was Mary Alice Bennett, uh, recently retired from the Ohio State University. And Mary Alice is long known as the grandmother of community pharmacy residencies, stretching uh, our imagination of what community pharmacies could do if uh, allowed by practice acts and if uh, payment models were in place. And she's proven uh, she's broken lots of glass ceilings and so forth. Her speech is must listen to information. I, every pharmacist ought to listen to her speech. Uh, it'll be available online, but it is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. So uh, with that, that was my favorite moment. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it's actually funny. I actually interviewed with her for a residency and didn't get it coming out of school. And in hindsight, now you're seeing this, you're like, oh, that's who I was interviewing with? I didn't realize that. Um, Sandra, what was your favorite moment? Well, it's kind of hard to top that moment because um, it is such a special recognition. And I think if you've seen, if you understand the importance of that uh, award and that recognition, it's like every pharmacist dreams of being in those shoes you know, in the future career that you actually make such an impactful contribution to the profession or you, you know, you impact students or you, you have some significant uh, change in pharmacy that, that warrants that level of recognition. So just to be there and be with the award winners uh, is just tremendous. So that was definitely one of my favorite moments. Um, but I wanted to mention other things that I thought were incredible about this meeting there were a couple of sessions that just really were phenomenal. I attended, uh, I mean, it was, we were trying to attend and then do the things that we had to do, but a couple that stood out to me were, um, there was one on advocacy from the, from the political pharmacist, that group that was just, just really trying to get people to get involved and understand the issues that are impacting pharmacy and how you can make a difference in that if you get politically involved. Um, I thought that was great because it was very motivating because a lot of the things that you mentioned earlier can be frustrating, but I think one of the big things that you um, can also do is actually make a change. So I think that was one of the, the sessions that I really appreciated. And then I went to the women, uh, women in pharmacy, the leadership meeting, which talked a lot about gender issues. 
um, which was great. The, the, and the other one that really stood out to me was the um, town hall on structural racism. So all of these issues are things that we were also addressing in the house uh, of delegates. And so to see all of these um, opportunities to talk to each other and have people that were really invested in trying to improve uh, the conditions uh, of situations people have to deal with, that's just really promising because we had a lot of engagement in all of these sessions. So I, I, I really enjoyed all of that. Yeah, I, I didn't get to sit in the women's one, obviously, but um, all the things that I kind of heard from what you talked about were things that were echoed or people talked about from that one in other sessions or meetings or CEs or what have you. And so it kind of shows that, you know, how much you really hit at there. My personal favorite was actually seeing Dan Schneider from, you know, the, the Netflix show, The Pharmacist down there. Um, and I think the reason for me why I liked it is he's never been the most APHA engaged person. He's never been the person who's taken the roles you guys have taken on or even heck stuff like I've done like, like podcasting or whatever. But it really shows like how much of an impact he made because I mean, I had family members come to me being like, could you believe this? I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I lived through some of it, like not his exact story, but I deal with some of that stuff daily. And for him to get hundred million views and really highlight kind of what we do and the impact we can have when it comes to this stuff, I thought was huge in helping just get the lay person to understand our role. And Dan is just, you know, someone who said it before in APHA is when you're a pharmacist, you're a pharmacist, like throw the titles out. You still have the same capabilities and knowledge set. And, you know, Dan's a little bit older than I am, but he, you know, he has the same knowledge set. He knows how to handle it and he might be better for his area. And I thought that was really cool. So every pharmacist can make a difference, every single pharmacist and never, you know, no one should ever feel discouraged or feel like they don't have a voice. You do. Every, every pharmacist can make a huge difference. And Dan's a great example of that. His story is powerful. Yeah. And there was, it kind of leads to the next question. So it kind of already answered mine. Like that was a keynote takeaway for me was every pharmacist can make an impact no matter where you are, just find a way to do it. Basically. Uh, Sandra, what was your favorite takeaway from any of the keynote speakers? Well, I mean, I appreciated uh, Janet Woodcock was was the person that I had the opportunity to interview and for her to speak uh, about the value of pharmacists and how she sees us really being partners in, in, in managing the pandemic, dealing with the pandemic. Um, it was great to see from that level from the FDA. So uh, I really appreciated that because we're seeing it every day. You know, you're living it, Eric, you're right there, boots on the ground. I just drove a minute's um, from uh, from my house, I was driving by the University of Arizona and I saw the number of cars in a line because they're doing vaccines there. And I have a lot of friends that are out there right now vaccinating that are pharmacists. So, and right now, I mean, it's late here in Arizona, it's, it's, it's 8 p.m. and it goes to like 11 or, or 12 midnight, they're just going and going and going. Uh, and so to me, that's, you know, it's nice to actually see that recognition because we are truly getting people that are out there trying to make sure that this pandemic goes away. And we saw sort of a glimmer of what normalcy is back, you know, seeing Michael for the first time in, in months that we hadn't seen each other face to face and actually walking back into the building was so incredibly, um, it was just really rewarding to be able to do that. I felt like, oh my gosh, this is, I can see that, that light at the end of the tunnel for this pandemic. And it's not a train this time. Like it seemed like it was in December. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Michael, what was your uh, favorite takeaway from the keynote speakers? Yeah. You know, Dan had so many pearls. Uh, he, he really had so many nuggets of things that he said. Uh, but one of the things that we, he and I talked about in the interview that I did with him toward the end is it was to me, 
the most heartfelt and most impactful. You know, we have so many students that attend the APHA meeting and young professionals uh, coming, you know, into their profession at a practice for the first time. And Dan talked a lot about your own personal internal moral compass. And, you know, there's a lot of pressures on pharmacists today, um, tons of pressures, especially as you well know, in the chain community pharmacy setting, the pressures can be just unreal and they're unreasonable. And, you know, APHA is working really hard right now to fight against that and to advocate and, and not every pharmacist necessarily sees that, but I can assure you that we are. Uh, and, and Dan talked a lot about how we have to uh, remember our code of ethics and we have to remember that we are there to serve the patient and when when you're asked to do something or uh, perhaps someone's demanding that you do something that rides against what your internal moral compass and your ethics tell you is not right then you got to stop you've got to hold on and say no I'm going to put a stake in the ground and I'm going to do the right thing and, and so, and then that was the, another thing kind of played into that. Mary Alice Bennett during her Remington lecture said that when you face adversity and you've got difficult things in front of you, do the next right thing, the next right thing. And if you continue to just do the next right thing and then the next right thing before you know it, you've gotten through the situation, you've advanced your cause and you've advanced the profession. And, and to me, those two things were just really resonating with me. Just do the next right thing. And, uh, and I think that's the best thing that we can do right now when things are tough and, and the world is difficult. Yeah, I'm a, you guys know this, I'm a marathon runner and even like some ultra distances. And sometimes when you get in the, the worst part of it, like mile 18 or whatever way out there, it's just get that next step in and do the right next thing. And if you need to walk, you need to walk. If you need to do whatever you need to do, just to get on to, to get to the finish line and do it safely. And I, you know, I was really, I really felt a lot of those things. When I was talking with it and love the way that they address some burnout and love seeing some of the people who are like quote unquote, regular retail pharmacists kind of hopping in there. Like Benjamin Jolly had a whole thing about that. He was going on with his CE that I really enjoyed. There was a lot of billing things and a lot of things that kind of talk about provider status, stuff like that. I, I really, you know, it kind of like, gives you the juice back a little bit. And then to see NBC kind of highlight some of our struggles a little bit was kind of like, yes, we're being heard a lot this week. It feels so great. Um, and, you know, kind of just highlight some of the things we're facing I thought was really good. Uh, kind of like a, just a general question. So it's, I know I love going to these things live because I'm just, I'm like a ball of energy when I get to see people and bounce off the walls. How was it for like behind the scenes this time, like as a virtual setup, like, was it good? Did you see more interaction? Did you see people you, know, you haven't heard before? Like, how was it? Well, I thought it was cool. I mean, I, you know, I'm just like you, Eric, in regards to that. I, I love, I, I have my build my energy from being around people and I love to be around people all the time. And uh, so my preference is definitely for a live face-to-face -face meeting. Uh, but I will say, um, there's just nothing like being at 2215 Constitution Avenue, Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, that headquarters building is an awesome, just an awesome testament to the profession sitting right across the street from the Lincoln Memorial. And, and I, you know, I've been in that building, you know, 
ever since it was, you know, not the front part's been built since uh, uh, the early 1900s, but the, but the back part is new. I've been in it since it's been built. Every time I go in that place, I get chills. I mean, I, I, the hair stands up on the back of my neck because it is such an awesome feeling to know that you're walking into that. And Sandra and I were able to high five and there were special moments and we were right there with the, you know, the, the MC for the host of the meeting, he was right there with us. It was, I mean, it really was live. Uh, there were some recorded educational sessions, but the general sessions, all that, it was completely live. And there's so much energy. We would just build off of each other. And uh, it was, and, and Mary Alice Bennett was there live. And last year's Remington medalist, John Gravenstein was there live. So it, it felt about as close to a real meeting to me as I think a meeting could feel. And there was so much energy. Um, I, I left the meeting just almost as exhausted as I was when I went to the last live meeting. <laughs> I agree. I mean, it was incredible to be there. Um, I don't know if you all if you all participated or saw that there was also the Digital Health Rx conference, which was the day before the meeting started. And so I was able to participate in that too, which was the first time that APHA has ever hosted that meeting. And that was a lot of like, it was a great way to kick off the meeting because we had a lot of really great participants and speakers talking about um, using digital health and solutions to reach patients, a lot of excitement around technology apps, remote, you know, sensors. Um, <clears throat> we had different presentations and just people speaking up and, and, and I could just see how that was leading into some of the digital sessions that happened within the meeting itself. So I think that was just the start. It was like planting the seed for what next meetings are going to be like. Um, so it was really great to see um, that kick off this year. But to Michael's point, to be in the building and to walk in there, every time I walk in there, the building is so incredibly impressive. It is truly like the mothership. You go home and uh, it's very uh, overwhelming. And what you said earlier, Eric, too, about you know, sometimes we get stuck in what we're doing, but when you get out there and when you talk to others and you feel the energy and you see the uh, the advocacy, the work that's being done, the excitement around what other people are doing across the country, it brings you back so that you can come back to your own practice and say, what can I do different? What can I add? How can I bring some of that back? So you don't feel um, frustrated because I think sometimes you get frustrated with the day-to-day. -day. You want to see what that is and, and then potentially see what your future uh, practice can become from what you've learned. One thing I thought was cool was like I would throw a comment in or like here there like I got to just pop in front of everyone's video and ask a question once or twice. And the one thing I thought was really cool was like I would say something or I, you know, and people would send me messages right away and like either like an answer to it or like a different twist on it. And like I know I've known Crystal and Weaver for a long time and same with Joey Mattingly for quite some time. And they were able to send me stuff right back and I was able to send them stuff and we were able to just kind of talk like that that I thought was really cool just because like in the meeting, it might not happen just because of how far away you're sitting from people at times, just they might be across the room, they might bully on a text message or something like that. But I thought it was really cool to kind of have it all in one at least and be able to be like, Hey, I can talk to you, talk to you. Or if there's a speaker, I could just say, thanks. I really appreciated that. And, you know, usually they'd message you back like, Hey, thanks. And I'm sure it feels good for them seeing it instead of having to wait in line and do all that, you know, the rolling around that you normally have to do in a big theater situation. So did you guys get a lot of feedback like that from what you were doing with stuff? Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Okay. One of the things I like to do, especially this virtual setup has been interesting, but when you have everybody 
on the screen with a gallery view and you can see the names. I like to have my LinkedIn open and I start looking to see if I'm connected or not. And if I'm not, I send them an invite. And so I've actually acquired a bunch of new friends. And so I've actually received a lot of messages from people um, since I've returned home, just, hey, do you want to talk or whatever? So I, you know, just to keep that connection going. But if we're in an actual live meeting, sometimes you don't catch people's names because they're not close enough to you or you didn't catch the spelling or you didn't grab a card. So that's that's a strategy I've been using right now with um, with the virtual format to try to capture more people's names and stay connected. That's really networking is cool. important. I think that's the best part of these meetings is the networking. I mean, you just, you, you meet so many new people, um, you know, I, it, despite the fact that I feel like I've been around forever, uh, there's a lot of people I don't know. And I meet a lot of really cool people doing neat things that I'd never even thought of before. It gives me great new ideas. Um, you know, despite being uh, an academician, which I realize requires, gets a lot of uh, criticism and controversy, I'm still a pharmacist and uh, I still practice. I mean, I run a big, massive uh, immunization clinic, COVID immunization clinic, and I still give shots. I didn't give any today, but I gave a lot of them yesterday. I'm going to be in clinic all day tomorrow. So, uh, it, but it's just great to be able to connect with people from so many different backgrounds and find out what's really happening in their practice and how it compares to what's going on in our practice. It is, to me, that's just, Awesome. And uh, I agree. Um, the connections through LinkedIn and, and other social media platforms are very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of why I wanted to follow up so that people, if they did go, they didn't feel like they were just stuck there watching it. Like you guys are actually real people. And kind of moving into like some other things is you guys have kind of been major players in kind of the, some of this COVID stuff, right? So um, Dr. Ho, you push vaccinations for like ever. And obviously, if we didn't have vaccination ability now, we'd be in a much different pandemic. So I don't want to act like anybody saw COVID coming. But at the same point is it just kind of, you know, was the proof of the concept was that, hey, we need this now. And we're even seeing expand out technicians. But, you know, pharmacists definitely had to be there and be a key part of it or else it wouldn't have happened at all. No one would have given technicians permission to vaccinate if it wasn't for pharmacists. And just look at all the logistics and all like the, the drug stuff and handling vaccines like flu shots year in, year out was routine for us now where it, that we already had some built-in systems for COVID, maybe minus the deep freezers, but because of some of the work that you've done. And again, that's why I wanted you on here. So do you think that these type of services kind of will what lead pharmacists to finally be recognized as providers, kind of what APHA is aiming for, since now people are looking at us for to literally cure a pandemic? Yeah, I'm, I'm completely convinced of it. I mean, you, you read my uh, uh, editorial in the uh, uh, morning uh, report at, uh, for, for on Capitol Hill that I wrote a few weeks ago uh, about the provider status push. I really believe, and, and you know, I'm, I'm halfway through my career. I really believe when I look back over my time in pharmacy, and I think this will be true when I get to the end, uh, pharmacist authorization to immunize and touch patients will be the single greatest thing that has changed the practice of pharmacy in my lifetime. Um, I really believe it has been the catalyst for a lot of other things that have happened in our profession, pharmacist authorized uh, prep and pep therapy, um, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, um, uh, naloxone prescribing and all other public health activities. 
And, and I think we are very close to that tipping point. I mean, in the coming weeks, APHA will be partnering with members of Congress to introduce a new bill uh, to authorize pharmacists uh, under the Social Security Act. This is something we've been going after for a long period of time. And I believe that the momentum is building strong. We're getting the ears. Of, I'm doing an interview tomorrow on CBS National News uh, about this very thing. Um, I, you know, we've done interviews with Fox. Um, uh, Sandra's done uh, so many interviews and uh, webinars. We're getting attention and consumers, when consumers get excited about getting access to their pharmacists, it's not about provider status. It's about consumer access to pharmacists provided patient care services. People get that. They understand it. They understand that their pharmacies are closing. And if they don't, uh, quickly get access to their pharmacists through the Social Security Act. They're going to lose their pharmacist access completely. Nobody wants that to happen. And consumers are starting to get it. The media is starting to pick up on it. And I believe we're about to hit the tipping point. I believe it'll be the hallmark of Sandra Leal's presidency that she will be the president that presided over APHA the year that pharmacists attained provider status under the Social Security Act. Mark my words, I'm predicting it tonight. Everybody can write it down. I think that's what's going to happen. I really am convinced of it. Yeah, I, I'm excited for that. And I know that, and I'm going to kind of step back a little bit of what you said there. I know a lot of people who are like me who work at chains get a little bit anxious when you see, because I think vaccinations are great because it's a good way for me to help protect people, right? And it's like, hey, look, I have a solution. I'm not telling you to go to your doctor. I can do it right here. Or telling you to go to an ER or whatever it is. And a lot of us get a little nervous because we think, oh no, well, providers to ask be one more burden. But like Scott Knorr said in some of his opening statements, APHA's top goals are payment reform, payment reform, payment reform. And this is where people might think it's getting political, but I think that's where when we see payment reform, we can see better staffing and see the complete dynamic of pharmacy shift. And then like the group we're sharing this in tonight, but for pharmacies, pharmacists for staff support with COVID, that's going to be huge because now we get more staffing. We get more people in there. So we're not just lick stick, here you go, and hardly seeing people. We're truly getting to know them a lot more. And I've worked on some programs in the previous role to help kind of lead to like MTM provider status type stuff. So uh, Sandra, do you think that something big like provider status, so I didn't realize it was coming out. That's awesome. I can't wait to see that. You're going to see me probably share the living bejesus out of that. But do you think that that thing is going to be the thing that helps force payment reform so that all of a sudden we can start working in safer, better, more constructive environments? I think the payment reform is very key to redesigning how we have more staff, how we see patients, um, how we allocate resources. I think the biggest challenge right now is that it, it, there's been less and less margins on product. And if we want to hire more staff to do more clinical services, we have to get reimbursed clinically to be able to do that. This isn't different than what physicians have to go through, but um, and they have to fight the same battles for payment and all of that. But when, when you do get recognition for your clinical service models, then you can start hiring the staff you need, the supportive services that help that. I mean, to the point where physicians have scribes to help them to make them more efficient, to focus on the clinical things that they need to focus on. So you start using your um, staff to the highest level of what they can do because you've got the, the funding mechanisms to help support those structures. And so it is right now, it feels like they're just throwing one more thing on you, but not giving you that staff. But it's because we've been lagging on that payment model, even vaccines, if you saw within this week, 
when we were uh, towards the beginning of this week, they changed the amount they're paying for the vaccine itself. And that's good. That actually then gives you more, even more um, ability to then look at staff and potentially hire more because you have more funding per vaccine that you didn't even have a week ago. Uh, so it, it, all of those things really make a difference. At the end of the day, a lot of it is really structured on the sustainability, being able to pay for those uh, different supportive services. And so payment reform is, is it's essential to be able to redesign what we're doing now. Yeah. And again, that's why I wanted you guys to come on here because I feel like that some of these things need more of like a explainer to them because some people might get the 10,000 foot view, but when you're looking at it from the granular, like you said, the boots on the ground, like my type of role thing, sometimes when you're getting those metrics and everything thrown at you, you're like, oh God, what's coming next? This is a whole can of worms. But to hear you explain it like that makes a lot more sense, especially like you said with the COVID vaccinations they're recognizing it. And we're seeing some people out there doing eight, 600, 800, a thousand shots a day in some of these clinics. That's a lot of work you need. And if that payment goes up $5, $10, however, you know, 20 bucks, what it went up and you carry the exponent, that's a lot more staff and you get in there to help do this right. Not just shove people in, in and out and miss little things or be forced to work to the bone, if you will. Um, so thank you for explaining that. I think that's something that people need to hear. I always kind of got it, but it's good to hear somebody higher than me explain it a little better. <laughs> um, another thing that Sandra, you kind of alluded to before, usually bylaws and resolutions that have in place like APHA are kind of boring. I'm not going to lie. I've been involved a lot with Kappa Psi, so it's a little bit different, but usually the bylaws and resolutions are like, all right, I'm going to go grab a coffee, go to the bathroom. Like this is usually boring. But I thought they were a little different this year. And you kind of alluded to some of that. Yeah, um, I, I was so impressed. I'm like, I was just really, I couldn't have imagined what an incredible intersection of, of topics. And I'm like, I'm public health, social determinants person here. Like my whole career has been that. So all of the things that were coming through. Um, so, you know, like the big one, anti-racism, harassment, um, social determinants of health, uh, people first language. And I've been fighting that battle for like five to 10 years. I, I work with, pop, you know, many populations with chronic conditions. And my biggest pet peeve is when somebody is called a person, not called a person, I can't even say it, a diabetic, you know, a person with diabetes or a person with hypertension, they're not hypertensive, just something like that. It, it, it seems small, but it, it's, it means a lot to the individual. You don't want to be known as a diabetic. You want to be known by your name and then you happen to have this condition. So just those things um, for our group to be addressing it very proactively and putting it uh, as a priority is, is key. And I love that. I love that all of these came together. And I actually sat um, a couple of nights ago for the student house of delegates. After I arrived home, I got on that and I saw the student group just they're, they, they have so much passion. A lot of the stuff that's really progressive, at least in my few years of attending the student house, seems to like rise up before um, it hits the main house, as I like to call it. Like I remember LGBT issues being addressed way early by them. I was so proud of that group to, to bring it up. And these are our future leaders. So you see that they're really tackling some difficult issues. Um, and then the rest of the body, uh, the, our house of delegates starts bringing it up too. But a lot of things came out this year that are incredible. And I think it's just the beginning of, of what we're doing to address, you know, a lot of the, the, the needs that are out there, a lot of the barriers that are out there for people to get good care. Before I move on to Michael, did you have a favorite one, like resolution bylaw thing you thought? I got one. I just want to know what you thought. Did you have a, did you have a favorite, Sandra? 
Oh, my favorite one. Oh my gosh. It's kind of hard because they're all so, I mean, anti-racism is so important, right? It's such a pivotal issue that we have to address, but how can you like harassment, sexual harassment, um, social determinants, it's kind of hard to decouple all of these because a lot of people have all three, all four that they're facing at the same time. So I, it's hard for me to pick just one. I'm just so glad that all of them are coming together and that we're looking at, uh, at all of these issues that are barriers for people and trying to address them all. And, and, you know, it's so funny. I'm just literally this morning, I get getting uh, feedback from members. Hey, like, Hey, why didn't you adopt this particular piece of it? What's the discussions? How do we move this forward? So there's still a lot of engagement and, you know, there's, it's a process, right? Like we can't change everything overnight. The, these things are issues that have been happening for years, years, 50, hundred years. We're not going to fix them with one attempt. It's going to be an evolution that we keep having to build upon and work together. And, you know, I always tell everybody, this is a membership organization. You're the member, sit at the table, get involved, have a voice, you know, be the person that continues to carry that baton forward. Because Michael said, we're about halfway through our career. And I remember being younger and I'm like, oh man, I, I have to get provider status before I retire. But I, ho I hope that's the case. I hope it is this year as you're predicting, Michael, but we need people to carry the batons and start planting seeds. And then that's why I love the political pharmacist group that was talking about, you know, being active and advocates, because we need more people doing this and not just a couple of people. We need everybody in the profession speaking out about what's not right and trying to address it head on, head on and fix it. How about you, Michael? What, what did you think was kind of cool about him or what was your favorite one too? Well, yeah. So um, if you don't mind, I'm going to just take a, a, about 30 to 60 seconds and give a little bit of a history lesson about this whole policy thing. So why does it matter that APHA uh, takes positions on policy and who makes them and how does that happen? So most pharmacists may not be aware, but uh, the policy making body at APHA is called the House of Delegates. And, and whether you believe it or not, or like it or not, the policy that's passed by APHA does impact every pharmacist. And I'll give you some very specific examples about it. The, the people who sit in this House of Delegates, they're representatives from all 50 states and all of the U.S. territories, all of the federal armed services and uniforms services. All of the national pharmacy organizations have representatives in the house. It really is pharmacy's policymaking body, the whole profession's policymaking body. And we deliberate and discuss and argue. And sometimes we fight in pharmacy's family about things that we don't all agree on. And we have some, um, some good ones and some pretty good arguments sometimes. But when we get to the end of the day, we either pass policy or we don't about things that we find important. But let me tell you why it's important. In the absence of a state law, and, and courts find that the standard of practice, okay, the standard of practice for any profession is, first of all, what does the law say that your state well, you can do, and what do the regulations in your state say that you can do? But in the court system, in the absence of a stand, in, in the absence of a law, or in the absence of a regulation, the courts look to the profession's uh, ability to self-regulate itself. And I have served as an expert witness in many court cases before where the APHA's policy manual was referred to 
as the de facto standard of practice for pharmacy and the profession's official word on where the profession stands on an issue. Now that's in the court system. So my, my point is, is that you should become involved in, in APHA and, and pay attention to what's going through the policy process at APHA because while it's not the law of your state, it is in fact impacting how laws evolve and how your state pharmacy association is engaging and trying to change things. That House of Delegates session is really making an impact. So now that was two minutes instead of 60 seconds. So I apologize for that. But um, getting down to the most important things, I think the policies that the association adopted on racism uh, were the bold uh, policies that needed to be said. And, and to me, they were common sense. They were things that we needed to say as a profession. And we needed to take a clear stand that we will not tolerate racism, period, as a profession. We're just not going to tolerate it. It's not acceptable in our employment practices. It's not acceptable in schools of pharmacy and our admissions practices. It's just not acceptable in the way we teach patients or treat patients. And we have to provide equitable health solutions for every person we serve. And we needed to take a stand on that as a profession. And I was very, very proud of the profession of pharmacy of taking a unified stand on that. I thought it was critically important. And from a policy standpoint, it was a no brainer, but it was really important that the profession stand together and do that. So I, that was for me, the moment. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you the one thing I think that's important about this, so there's technicians in the one in the one Facebook group at least who are listening to this. And a lot of this is like, you know, they probably think all oh, these pharmacists, like we outnumbered them five to one, you know, in like certain community settings. Why are they always having these meetings and talking about this stuff? But like you said there, you're talking about employment practices, how we interact, standards set by the national organizations. And that I hate to use the term, but like will trickle down to how the pharmacies are managed and things like that. So we're talking about how we're treating our technicians, our employees and things like that, just as we interact with them. And, you know, if this is a, a, a major thing is to, you know, wipe out racism in any sort of pharmacy. And like Sandra said, call people instead of diabetics, a person with diabetes, that's, you're not a technician, you're a person who is a technician. Like, you know, we, we're getting that humanity back to it and how we treat people. And I think that's, I think that's super important. My favorite one actually was different than anything you guys said. And not that I think that isn't important, but I thought it was interesting was that APHA is going to look at kind of what would happen if we merged some of these pharmacy organizations and like streamlined it. I thought that was interesting because like as, as somebody sitting from the back pew, if you will, it just kind of made sense to me as I'm like, why don't we have one? Because a lot of times when you hear, I know this isn't the case, but like, when you hear the AMA's name get thrown out there, American Medical Association, a lot of times you, like, they're the group you always hear about. You're like, oh, yeah, that's the doctor's group. Like, no questions asked. It's them over there. And APHA has that, but we also have so many, like, like a complex web of pharmacy organizations, if you will. Like, oh, you're a clinical pharmacist. You're an independent pharmacist. You know, it's like it's all over the place with some of that stuff. So I thought that was cool. and really showed that, you know, they're kind of listening to some people maybe like me or sitting in the back pew kind of questioning things and might kind of give us more impact as a profession if we have a more unified voice, which I really feel like we've seen a lot in the past year with COVID, the uh, Supreme Court case with PBMs and all these other major like landscape shifting, like crack in the ground things. So I thought that was kind of cool. And one of those things right. that yeah. was, was, although it seems like little and like common sense, you're like, that's huge. Like that takes everything. Um, and, you know, 
what was kind of moving on from that, just because again, battles can be a little boring. I don't want to hammer people on those, but uh, what was one thing that, and you guys can either one you can go that you learned during the conference from like a CE or something like that? Well, I just, I mean, I think the thing that I, I saw and just, it just, it reinvigorated me was just the energy of people. I mean, there were so many things, there were great sessions. Um, a lot of the topics that were covered were phenomenal. I love the stuff around um, just addressing, you know, well-being, uh, technology. Um, I, there were so many things that were part of the session. I, I guess my, when I, when I'm there, what I take away from that is I want to hear what people have a pulse on, like, what are the things that are really driving? And then, you know, the, what do we need to work on basically is, is what I'm looking at. When you see people coming in and asking questions, like I was in part of the billing sessions, I learn what I need to start working on and focusing on and what, what, where there are gaps basically, so that then we can carry that on and either look at new opportunities for new content or figure out who that next content expert is. So I'm looking at, at it from that lens, not so much a session per session, but there are, you know, there are a couple of things. I know Michael, you, you um, and I were sitting together when we were uh, watching the PBM one, there was one on PBMs and just, you know, his point of view about what he was seeing with a slide and, seeing um, the reaction of that and, and how we discussed that as we were sitting there together. I think that was just one of the takeaways of like, it really matters how things are said, how things are positioned and, you know, how you want to approach them as you're uh, trying to address different issues. So uh, it's, yeah, I take a little bit from everything, but globally, I just, from the conference itself, I try to look at the pulse of things, where things are going, where there are gaps and what we can help to fill that gap. And then definitely from an APHA perspective as a, you know, as the organization, what, what can APHA do to meet the members needs, but then also from a personal level, what do I need to go back? Cause my job, my current position is to try to define solutions for care gaps, use telehealth, collaboratively work with, you know, pharmacists boots on the ground to reach people that are having challenges being reached and how do we help support that? So it sort of cross-sectionally impacts all of um, the pieces of, of my practice and, um, and what I do with APHA. How about you? Yeah, so um, I actually got five and a half hours of CE, which I thought was pretty impressive. I've never gotten that much hours of CE at a live APHA meeting because I'm always tied up with other things. But but I actually, I think my favorite was a, um, a session on uh, coding and billing for pharmacist services. Um, you know, uh, you said this a little bit earlier, Eric, about the community pharmacy space and decreasing staffing and so forth. But, uh, you know, it's all about the money. Um, and, you know, the, the reality is, is that you got to have money to have a mission, no money, no mission. And so, um, you know, I think there are some models emerging of pharmacists being able to successfully bill for certain aspects of their services that uh, are happening. And there was an outstanding session that was uh, a pharmacist who's in ambulatory outpatient care who's successfully getting paid for services on a regular basis and a health system-based pharmacist that is successfully uh, billing um, for pharmacist services within the health system. And I thought it was intriguing to hear their real life examples and first person uh, experiences on how they're, you know, have overcome some challenges and barriers and been successful with billing. That's one of the CE sessions that, you know, if you weren't able to make it to the meeting, you can actually access uh, after the meeting uh, through uh, virtual registration. But 
that that was a really good one for me uh, personally. And you know, Sandra is one of the nation's leading experts on billing for pharmacist services. And uh, you know, it comes all it always comes back to provider status. You know, when you're talking about the job market in pharmacy right now, it's kind of tight. It's hard to find a job if you don't have one. But once you find a job, you want to hold on to it. Uh, I get all of that. But I know, and, I, and I'm not exaggerating, I could name two dozen physician-based practices, group practices that are within an hour of the place I live right now, who would in a moment hire a pharmacist full-time within their facility if they could bill for the pharmacist services, either under fee-for-service structures or under, uh, you know, could, could build it into an accountable care structure and, you know, value and showing worth. And so there, there are tons and tons of opportunity. And that's why I think the provider status thing, which Eric, you've been such a champion for, and I appreciate that for the, on behalf of the profession, I thank you for it. Uh, we, we've got to get that thing through the eye of the needle because it's going to break this log jam. It's going to open up the, uh, the world of opportunity to our profession. And, you know, the, I don't think we can even imagine what pharmacists could do if we had the full authority to be able to exercise the top of our training. I think we, we can't even imagine what opportunities would evolve. Well, I think about that because even just if you're even looking at the, the clinics that they're opening in retail or, you know, community pharmacies. I mean, a lot of those are not staffed by pharmacists that literally are physically there. And why? It's because of the payment models. It's because of the billing, uh, the payment issues around clinical service reimbursement. So that is one of the, the areas I think that's frustrating, but it, you know, I've been doing a lot of work on billing for my entire career because I had to justify my position and I had to justify all the FTEs that I wanted to hire to deal with a, with a number of chronic conditions. We're doing diabetes prevention now with, with telehealth hybrid models. So if there's a will, there's a way. It just shouldn't be as hard, right? Like it shouldn't be so hard to do what you're trained to do. That's what I've always been frustrated. And mm-hmm. I and I, I mentioned this during my the meeting a few times. I'm like, I, I've received best practice awards, but I don't want to be the best practice. I want to be the standard of care because that should be what every patient has. They have the standard of care and not just a best practice or a unique situation where they get to sit with me. It should be that this happens all the time and people have, the ability to have their problems resolved, medication uh, related issues, medication optimization, disease management helped and managed by a pharmacist as part of the team. That should be the standard of care. Yeah, and you know, it's kind of funny you say that because I think COVID really highlights that because you just look at how many phone calls we're getting in pharmacies every day. Like, okay, phones just don't stop anymore. Like there's never a moment a phone isn't ringing. You just pick up, just push the pickup button and you'll get a question. And I think that just shows how much people rely on us for it. And I know some people who are probably working community or retail are probably thinking, well, they're just going to hire some clinical person. Well, no, you can kind of rotate in and out and help manage those patients or have maybe so many patients you follow in that setting because you really bond with them. And obviously just looking, you know, like people in our profession, we have people of all different, you know, religious, um, political, uh, ethnic backgrounds that maybe you connect better with that person. So, you know what, I don't want to talk with them because you have a better connection and you can adopt that. And in any one pharmacy, unless you're a one man independent shop, for the most part, you're going to have multiple pharmacists in there who can do that. And that's just kind of, if anything, like you said, helping justify that and why we need those billing codes so that we can help kind of, I want to say, I don't want to use this in a bad way, but like take back our profession, if you will, and really kind of use, as Michael said, our training and our education instead of our license per se, because our license is just there. So we're allowed to kind of 
play with drugs, give it to people and talk about it. But, you know, our education is there so we can make the difference, if you will. And I think that that's a huge thing that I also, that was going to say too, that I thought that billing thing was awesome because there's all these codes flying across. And I think it was Stu Beatty who was the one who led it, if I remember correctly. And I was like, what are all these codes? And he's like, you know what? Ignore the codes. This is how many times, like, or how many minutes we're allowed to bill for it. And this interaction kind of looks like this. And I was like, oh, okay. Now I understand a lot better. But the codes are nice to know in the back end. But I just thought it was really cool to have that part of it and have him break it down. And I'm not going to lie. I'm a little proud he's from my home state of Ohio, too. So it's good to see some change like that. Obviously, I'm a little biased. But, you know, that is what it is. Um, so that's kind of what we had today. Um, before I give it back to Sean, which as everyone knows, Sean Bjorndahl is kind of helped lead this. He's been doing RPH Ally kind of behind the scenes. It's a network for pharmacists where they can kind of go and only pharmacists are in it. So it's kind of like an APHA meeting, if you will, but like kind of like APHA meeting meets Facebook, but he does vet so that only pharmacists are on it. So that when you're in there talking, you can go in there and have a professional conversation or know you're throwing a question strictly to pharmacists. He's also got some other cool tool, tools on there and kind of like media for pharmacists. So I want to thank him for hosting this today and kind of bringing all three of us together. He really led the charge on this. It's kind of a way we can really make a virtual wrap up for APHA because a lot of times we see these things and this is no offense to you guys. You almost seem like a far off figure who's talking to us and we're like, okay, that's great. But it's kind of nice to see you guys in your home and your setting and hear your opinions on it and know that you are real people at the same time, which is, is good to know. I, I've gotten to know you, but it's good to kind of bring that to people a little bit. I always so. tell people if they only knew that I wear Converse all the time. on you know, an Alabama t-shirt. I'm a football fan, just like everybody else. I mean, totally I, like everybody else. I'm like, my daughter's like, you just take all your fancy clothes to the meeting. I'm like, yeah, that's it. I've only got about five outfits like that. We're very casual on the West coast. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. Uh, the suits are a little uncomfortable for me, but uh, we do it when we have to. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I just, uh, I want to thank you, Eric, but uh, Sean, I also want to thank you. I mean, we do have to, I, the term take back our profession, um, it's almost cut you to the quick to think that we have to say that, but uh, but we do, we really do. Um, and, and I appreciate uh, all of our pharmacists and everything they're doing day in and day out. It's a tough job. I'm a pharmacist, my wife's a pharmacist. Um, you know, my sister-in-law is a pharmacist. My daughter is going to pharmacy school. She's starting that journey in college and will be going to pharmacy school here in a couple of years. So um, I've got a lot invested in the profession and uh, I wanna see us win this race and it's a race, it's a marathon. But I, you know, I just keep telling people, you gotta keep pushing. You just gotta keep pushing forward. You know, the difference between the winners and the losers are that the winners just kept pushing a little bit longer until they crested the top of the hill. And, and that, that's the only difference. They just kept pushing. They were persistent. They persisted longer. And the people who lost gave up and quit. And, uh, you know, I don't think uh, pharmacists are quitters. I think we are persistent people and we double down. And I think that's what we have to do. And so I just, I appreciate Sean, what you do and Eric, what you do. And of course, I'm Sandra's biggest fan. I absolutely love her and, uh, and love what she's about to do with APHA. And so uh, Sandra, good luck. Congratulations. Well, tough shoes to fill, as you can see. I mean, Michael's phenomenal. And I didn't tell you uh, one of my other favorite uh, 
parts of the keynote was his presentation where he really acknowledged all the pharmacy heroes out there and just talked about all the good work that's being done by pharmacists. It's just, a min, uh, and he's one of them. I mean, he truly is one of the pharmacy heroes. He's role model for his school and the students that he works with every day. They're building up a future of clinicians. That's just, it's incredible for the profession. I don't have as many pharmacists in my family. I'm the only pharmacist in my family. But for me, pharmacist has been everything. It's given me all the opportunities in the world that I never even imagined possible. So I feel I owe pharmacy so much. So that's my, my goal is to make sure that others love it as much as I do. Yeah. And, you know, speaking to, you, to your point there, Michael, you know, people see you as the president of APHA or past president now and seems they see you like that. But like, I've seen Michael out there posting videos of him giving vaccinations and like I've seen you like in doing stuff with clinics and patients Sandra so I think that's huge that people got to remember like you are people and they can ask you questions like you're not like these godlike figures that are just mythical and kind of like Michael Scott Kenora's son's also going into farm school in fact I think he's finishing up if I remember correctly so when people sit there and try to be critical of APHA they've got some skin in this game with their kids too not just them so I want to make sure everyone kind of realizes that that's one of those little personal things you might not realize outside of that, but that's kind of shows you why they're doing things they're doing is they want to make a better path for not just me and like you, but like their kids too, so that they can come make a difference. So I think that's huge. Uh, thanks again, you guys for coming on here. I hope this people get last question, open. Eric, last question for Sandra, because oh, yeah. you touched on it earlier. So how, I mean, between you and Michael, you've got, what was it, like for over 40 years going to APHA events, right? And you say, keep pushing, Michael. Like, how, what, what advice would you give us or give any pharmacists out there? To, how do you get involved? How do you help push that forward? Well, there's one thing I pushed out in my Twitter feed earlier. There are um, section interest groups, and they're actually recruiting right now for those section interest groups on different topics, whatever is of interest to you. The applications are open until April 12th. That's a great way to get involved because it starts you up the path of these different groups. Um, so for example, there's the <clears throat> medication therapy management SIG, there's a diabetes SIG, there's a public health SIG that's fairly new and um, care for the underserved, uh, ACOs. I mean, there's a lot of different uh, opportunities to get involved in those. And so you join that group, that group gets together and starts developing resources that help each other. They have webinars, they network. Um, and, and from that, a lot of the leadership comes up. You can actually run for a SIG position and then there's sections and you sort of start your path up. So I think that's one, one of the easiest ways to get involved and you get to meet really interesting people that are doing the things that either you want to do or that you can share what you're doing so that you can collaborate and potentially build some networks like that. That's really how I developed some of the some of my best friends in pharmacy that were working on ambulatory care issues and trying to figure out the codes you know, somebody was trying it in North Carolina and somebody was trying it in New Mexico. I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to try my state and see if we can do some of that work. That's where I started to pick up a lot of this information. So um, it's open now, though. So April 12th um, is when the deadline is for volunteering for these groups. But there's a, a number of ways. That's just one that comes to mind because it is open right now for you to participate. Yeah, thanks for asking that, Sean. I totally forgot that one. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Eric. Well, no, you did plenty of talking, so that's okay, right? <laughs> no thank you michael thank you sandra just love hopefully you know we're gonna we're gonna reshare the heck out of this video just so you know we can get this out to all the pharmacists out there apha members or not we just we just want everybody to to get involved and like you said michael just keep pushing forward so 
Thanks, Much appreciated. Guys. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Awesome. All right. Thanks, you guys. Take care.